More than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. You guys are sort of all over the world, it seems like. It's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. Here on Inspiration Dissemination. photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time. They're now converted into basically mathematical shapes, and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. It is the 11th of August, 2019, and you're tuned into 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It's currently just after 7 p.m., which means that it's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Heather Forsyth. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature their research and their personal stories on one of those students each week. And if you're a grad student at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show and talking about your research, we'd love to have you. And you can find out more about all the awesome things going on at Inspiration Dissemination at our blog at blogs.org state.edu slash inspiration and here you can find the links to our twitter and facebook pages and to our podcast so if you miss an episode you can always listen to it later inspiration dissemination is recorded live and should they occur any opinions expressed on the show are those of their host and their guest and do not necessarily represent oregon state university or this station tonight i'm joined by grace dietzler who is a second year phd student in microbiology within the college of science and she's working with dr maude david Thank you for coming on the show, Grace. We're really excited to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. So let's go ahead and jump in. Tell us about your research and what you do over in microbiology. Yeah, okay. So um, as you said, I am starting my second year here at Oregon State in the Department of Microbiology. Uh, I am working with Dr. David on the gut-brain axis and how the microbes that occupy our uh our mental health and the way that our gut communicates with our brain and just all kinds of different things that are happening thanks to those bacteria in our gut. And we are specifically interested in the interactions of those bacteria and how they might impact uh, things like autism spectrum disorder and anxiety disorders. Okay. So can we back up for just a second and clearly define, so the gut-brain axis is related to just lots of colonies of bacteria that's in our our gut. And where are those things located and how many are there living in there? (laughs) Um, So how many is a great question. I think I feel like I should know the answer to that, but I'm going to be honest and say that I don't know a number. Um, But there are millions, billions, possibly trillions of bacterial cells. The majority when we talk about gut bacteria, the majority of what we're talking about is located in the the large intestine, so the colon. People think of the gut as being like the stomach, but the stomach is actually pretty inhospitable to most bacteria. So most of those gut bacteria are located in our intestines. Um, and uh, did you want to talk about the gut-brain axis more? We can yeah. do that. Yeah, I want to know what the purpose of these bacteria are. So we've <laughs> got all of these little guys and gals living in our intestine. Right. And what do they help us do or do they just live off of us like parasites? Yeah, so we have bacteria occupying almost every part of our body, um, from our skin to our 
uh, like I was saying, our digestive tract, reproductive tracts, uh, they're there everywhere. Um, and the ones in the gut serve a variety of functions, many of which we still uh, are finding out now. Um, but one that we that I can say for sure is uh, they help us digest a lot of uh food and things that we eat that we can't necessarily digest on our own. So a lot of bacteria in the gut are capable of breaking down plant fibers and like cellulose and um, other things that we uh, consume that we actually as humans do not produce the enzymes for, but we rely on this relationship with the bacteria in our gut to kind of process some of those nutrients. Cool. So the bacteria are using sort of the same building blocks and nutrients that we would use and are able to, a lot of the time, make things that we can't make ourselves mm-hmm. to enable us to eat things that we otherwise wouldn't be able to get nutrients from at all. Sure, yeah. Um, and so they, as they are consuming some of these uh, things that we're eating, um, they are producing different compounds and molecules and other little little proteins and things that uh, they are, you know, some are eating what each other are producing, and some of those compounds are interacting with our gut Uh, lining itself. Um, And one of the interesting things about our gut is we actually have a lot of cells that line the inside of the intestines that uh, are like neural cells. They communicate with um, our nervous system. They're called like neuroendocrine cells. Um, And they communicate with our nervous system to help impact uh, just other kinds of signaling. So um, you may have heard, people may have heard of like serotonin mm-hmm. signaling before. So serotonin is a molecule that um, is associated with a lot of things in the human body. Uh, happiness is one of them. And these mo- these bacteria can actually produce some small molecules that are precursors to serotonin. So they're producing these molecules. They get into our system somehow. And um, through some mechanism or another, they help us feel good or not so good or uh, that's generalizing a lot I think but um, yeah you get the idea sure so in general these bacteria are we know that we're they're somehow related to mental health mental uh, neurotransmitters and other things going on in our brains so then that brings us to your research with autism spectrum disorder and what are you looking at more specifically? Yeah, so um, just to preface a little bit, autism spectrum disorder is a developmental condition that's uh, estimated to affect approximately one in 59 children in the United States. Some of the big symptoms of it are uh, social behavior deficits, um, repetitive behavior, and one of the other um common comorbidities with autism is actually gastrointestinal problems. So things like what we call leaky gut, which is where the, the some of the cells in the gut aren't fitting as tightly together. So it causes this, this gap. Um, and we're interested in studying the gut microbiome in relation to autism spectrum disorder because it has been shown previously by other researchers that there is a connection. So some of the things that have been shown about that are that children with autism actually have a markedly different gut microbiome. Uh, There are certain species of bacteria that are elevated and certain species of bacteria that are lowered as compared to, uh, for example, their uh, peers without autism. And so that's that's just kind of interesting. Uh, Why would that be? It's that's kind of the big question here that we don't really know. And additionally, we actually have, or there have been studies that have shown that you can mediate some of the symptoms of autism by administering certain types of bacteria, some t- certain types of beneficial bacteria. So this can, and I should preface, this isn't a mouse model. 
this is a mouse model that recapitulates some of the um, behavioral phenotypes that we see in autism. Um, so feeding this beneficial bacteria can actually show a, an improvement in behavioral symptoms um, as well as gastrointestinal symptoms. So it's clear that modulating the gut microbiome can do something to autism. It's, it's not this factor that is completely unrelated. So what we're looking at specifically is taking one of those taxa of bacteria that was found to be significantly elevated in children with autism. Uh, it's called a clostridium. It's a, clost it's a species of clostridium that, that we are culturing. And we are also using a mouse model. So we are feeding the mice this bacteria and we're interested in seeing what kind of effects that has on that on their behavior. So can we recapitulate some of the symptoms of autism in the mice uh, by feeding them this bacteria? Okay, so you're feeding these mice bacteria that you see in elevated amounts in children with autism spectrum disorder. So walk me through what the rest of your research then is. So you have a bunch of mice, mm -hmm. you feed them this, mm -hmm. presumably you're taking care of some mice. Yes. <laughs> and then what goes on after that? Yeah, so we feed them for a couple weeks. It's actually really cute. So we feed them, we put the bacteria in apple juice um, yeah. and they love apple juice. So they like <laughs> dip their little paws in it and it gets all over their face and they're, it's real, it's real cute. Um, so we, yeah, we feed them this bacteria and then we run uh, several different behavior tests on them. So these are tests that have been used by other labs and other studies. They're well established to uh, kind of be ways to, to look at different kinds of behavior. So we're interested in looking at anxiety behavior. Um, we're looking interested in looking at repetitive and restricted behavior, which is similar to, it, it's a behavior displayed um, in autism spectrum disorder. Um, and we're also interested in social behavior. So we use a couple different, a couple different behavioral tests to do that. So if you picture the, I guess it's a kind of maybe a stereotypical like mouse in a maze kind of, uh -huh. yeah, not, not quite that complicated. It's not, it's not like a, a maze where the mouse has to find the cheese or anything like that. Okay. But we do have a test that we call the, um, it's a maze test. And we have a test where the mice, we look at how many marbles they're bearing. There are marbles out in an array and look at the indicators of, of how many marbles they're bearing, how many marbles they're leaving untouched. Um, in the social social test, uh, we're looking at how often they interact with another mouse versus how often they are kind of staying to themselves. Um, so yeah, there's a there's a lot of information we can learn from looking at the behavior of these mice. Sure. Okay. Cool. So you have these mice. You see if they will repetitively bury a bunch of marbles. You see if they want to hang out with the other mice friends, and uh, you gather this data, and then you convert that into some quantifiable number or score, I assume. Mm -hmm. And then what happens to the mice? <laughs> um, so, yeah, we collect all that data. We compare the groups that we fed bacteria versus the groups that just received apple juice with no bacteria um, and see kind of what those differences are. And then, unfortunately for the mice, perhaps, we, we euthanize them and collect different parts of their body that we're interested in looking at. So we collect, we do collect the brains. Um, mm -hmm. We collect different portions of the uh, digestive tract. And we're going to be looking at those areas that we collected. And there's a couple of different things we're interested in looking at, depending on the region of the body that we're collecting there. Sure. So just to clarify one more time for the audience, you expect the 
the hypothesis, I guess, would be that the mice fed the bacteria would show increased behaviors that are associated with autism spectrum disorder. And also maybe you would see biological indicators of that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You got it. And based on our preliminary findings, that is what we are seeing. So these mice do have, they they do show increased anxiety-like behavior. They show increased uh, repetitive behavior. They're less social than the control mice. Um, and what we're going to be looking for later within like the gastrointestinal tract and whatnot is, do we see symptoms of um, this leaky gut that I talked about a little mm-hmm. earlier? Do we see different microbiomes in the mice with um, that have been fed this bacteria versus the control mice? The brains we'll, we'll get to, we're not quite there yet. That'll be a little further down the road. But in there, we're interested in looking at gene expression in okay. different portions. So should I give a little? Yeah, let's talk about how we look at gene expression. Sure. So uh, we can do a review of the central dogma real quick. So I'll let you do it. Okay. <laughs> so the central dogma of biology is um, DNA to RNA to protein. So DNA is the building blocks of life. Uh, protein is kind of the the end product here. So what we're producing in RNA is the middle step. So it's the translational, transcriptional, it's the molecule that tells us how to get from DNA to protein specifically. So when cells are uh, like telling each other or telling themselves to make different kinds of protein that they might not always make or that they might always make, uh, it's one of the questions we're looking at, I guess. You can find these little, basically we're looking for these little markers within these different regions and seeing, is the bacteria prompting different genes to be expressed? Does that kind of make sense? Yeah. So you've got, uh, we have the same genes around all the time, but we don't need them all the time. We don't need all of the genes all of the time. (laughs) So then different genes will be expressed or active when, uh, depending on the pathways that are active or needed for that cell's. And the RNA is what tells us whether or not that's happening. Right. So if we can pull the RNA out of these different uh, regions, then maybe we can get some kind of clue as to what was going on while the, you know, while the mouse was alive. And it's not just in the brain. We can also look at that in the gut. And bacteria also produce these kind, these signatures. We'll mm-hmm. call them. Um, and so we can also look at what the bacteria are saying to each other, I guess, so to speak. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so what happens after you collect all of this RNA data? So then you've got to somehow merge. You've got this behavioral data, and you have your biochemical, microbiology, maybe some physiological data. Mm -hmm. And how do you combine that, and what do you do with it? That's a great question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So it'll, you know, grouping them by, you know, control group or experimental group, and then just seeing, are there any trends? Do... Uh, mice that display a certain kind of behavior have, do they share some genes that are being expressed? Do they share some bacteria that are um, more elevated in them compared to the controls? You know, there's so many ways we can approach this. And right now it's kind of just collecting the data and uh, hopefully we'll be able to answer some more of those questions a little later, but kind of just trying to make, make connections here. Sure. So do you only work with mice? I primarily work with mice. However, um, I have recently begun working with another lab on campus in collaboration uh, on a project studying the honeybee. 
So is it also the microbiome that you're studying with my, with bees? Do they have one? Yeah, they do. So bees, um, they do have a very, they have a small digestive tract, but uh, yeah, uh-huh. they have, uh, they have bacteria living in them as well. Much less, it's much less diverse than in humans. So humans mm-hmm. have a lot of different kinds of bacteria as well as a lot of bacteria. The bees only have a couple dominant species that kind of occupy their guts, but Yeah, so we're looking at, there's a couple different kinds of probiotics that are available to feed honeybees. Um, And what we were interested in is, does feeding those those probiotics to these bees, does it change their microbiome, their microbiome? (laughs) 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 Does it change their... Um, behaviors or behavior. Oh my god! <laughs> I, I love the honeybee work just for the puns. Um, Amazing. <laughs> yeah. So so there's uh that's one that we're doing in collaboration with the honeybee lab here, and um, I enjoy it. I, I like working with the bees. They're cool. they're pretty cute. <laughs> All right. What else do you do in your spare time? <laughs> uh, what spare time? I'm a grad student. No. Yeah. Really. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um. So yeah. So I'm involved in. I guess a lot of different things on campus and in my life in general, um, I'm very active on Twitter. Yes. And science Twitter, which I know you are as well. Yes. Grace and I are Twitter friends and met there first. (laughs) And now here we are meeting in real life. Yeah. IRL. So yeah, I I joined Twitter a couple years ago. It's been a great tool. Um, I don't know if you want to talk about Twitter now. Yeah. Let's talk about science Twitter because there might be undergraduates thinking about going to grad school or something or other grad students who don't have maybe a community to look for the for these things. So uh, for those who don't use Twitter, there's kind of sub communities within Twitter. And one of them is kind of what we would call science Twitter, where a whole bunch of scientists get together, chat about research, struggles of being a grad student or a PI or et cetera. Yeah, um, so it's a huge community, and it's a really, I would say, a fairly supportive one as well. Yeah. Um, I think Twitter tends to get a bad rap for being kind of this cesspool of sure. toxicity, but science Twitter is a real, it's a real gem um, there. So I primarily use it for networking with other scientists, um, other grad students, but also other uh, PIs and professors and uh, just people that are in that sphere of science, not necessarily just academia, though a lot of them tend to be academics. And man, I use it to ask people questions like, what do I wear to a conference? Sure. <laughs> and yeah. how do I, you know, how do I write an abstract? You know, just like questions that it's, you know, it's nice to have a lot of people to ask and kind of get the group group knowledge there. On right. That. And it's really diverse because... You might, you know, someone in Oregon might tell you, wear your hiking boots to this <laughs> conference. And someone at a different university who's been to that conference multiple times might tell you something totally different. Yeah. So. Yeah. So it's just a it's a great place to get diverse perspectives and and learn about other things that are happening. So other research things. So I use Twitter to find a lot of papers, actually, um, within microbiology, yeah. um, but also just like learning about things that are happening socially or politically within mm-hmm. science and academia. Okay, so let's talk. I want to talk about um, your art science work. Yeah, sure. So um, art and science, (laughs) I think uh, for a long time, those two fields were kind of posed as opposites. However, I think more and more people are agreeing that 
we need each other, scientists and the artists. Um, so I'm part of a group here on campus um, that I was actually, I helped uh, co-found along with um, several other individuals. It's called Seminarium um, and it is a group dedicated to the intersection of art and science. So we have members that are scientists, we have members that are artists, we have members that um, are both, uh, we have members that are neither who just appreciate both of those fields. and. It's a fairly new group on yeah. campus, um, but we've had a couple of projects so far. Yeah, just celebrating yeah. those things. What do you think people are getting out of that? Because some people might say, like, why would a scientist need art, like need to make art or like in what context would that ever have to happen? Right. So I think uh, we... Art can often, and it is often seen as being in service to science in a lot of contexts. So the the first few examples that come to mind are things like scientific illustration, sure, um, using art as a medium to help explain science uh, to the general public or bring it beyond the sphere of just um, scientists. Um, but I think it goes both ways. I think that um, you know art is is very, it's a very creative field. Um, science can be, but I think a lot of times we lose sense of, we lose sight of that sense of creativity sure. um, in science. And it can be really important to, to remember that and to interact with, um, with artists and to create our own art and kind of just maximize that creative flow. Um, yeah. I think a lot of from my own personal experience, I think a lot of scientists forget that science is a creative process. Yeah. There's a lot of, it's not just a logical flow of events. It's thinking about things in new ways and pushing yourself to come up with new ideas, right? And that's ultimately what art is. And yeah. I know I talked to, I went to a science communication conference and there was like this uh, dance and science collaboration. And when I went, my immediate thing was, oh, the art, the dancers are helping the scientists explain their science. And they, I was immediately corrected and I, they were like, no, we gave the scientists to the dancers so that they could make better art or yeah. like have a new story. And I think that we sort of lose sight of both of that, I guess that perspective that the art itself is valuable and we need it to make ourselves better scientists yeah. and not always the other way. Yeah, I agree with you 100% there. And I think that's how many of the people in this group feel as well, that, you know, art is, is a reflection of who we are as humans, I think. Um, and it's important not to not to lose that and to, yeah, come up with new stories to tell. And science can be a great source of those kinds of stories. Um, so, for example, one of the events that we... Um, just hosted recently, I guess, well, it was May, so not that recently now. Uh, at the end of last term, um, we worked for a term on a project centering around this uh, lecture given by Dr. Jerry Bartholomew, who's um, de the faculty, or the department chair, sorry, of the microbiology department and also the faculty advisor for Seminarium. Um, and she was giving a lecture on, uh, to the public on how these parasites affect, there's a certain kind of parasite that affects salmon. And what we did as a group is we created a couple collaborative art pieces, kind of looking at different stages, looking at different parts of the life cycle of this parasite. 
Um, and in addition to the art that we created, there was a live music and art performance kind of using the life cycle of this parasite to inspire the music and to inspire the art that was going on at the same time as this musical performance. Um, so it was a really beautiful marriage of science, art, storytelling, um, and just collaboration. I think it was a really Ooh. great, yeah. Yeah, that sounds expression. awesome. Can we back up oh, sorry. and yeah. <laughs> ask you how you even got to grad school? Yeah, <laughs> yeah sure. So I went to a small engineering school in Rolla, Missouri, um, very far away from here. Um, some people... Some people at home might be listening right now, so hello. Um, And while I was in college, I was studying biology and I wasn't entirely sure what I wanted to do with that. Um, So I think like a lot of biology majors in college, I decided to become pre-med. Sure, Um, we've all been there. Yeah. (laughs) I graduated from college, was signed up for the MCAT, um, decided that really wasn't what I wanted to do. And at the time I was working in a research lab at Washington University in St. Louis. So... Um, this lab I had been in for a couple summers as an undergrad. I had been doing research there. We were studying the vaginal microbiome and uh, different ways that there that that can affect pregnancy outcomes. And I really fell in love with research during that time. And I didn't. I kind of didn't realize it until I decided to not take the MCAT that research was an option for my career to go. Like I could go down that path. And so, you know, I was thinking, well, how do I do that? Oh, I guess I got to go to grad school. You know, I I hadn't really ever thought about grad school before. It didn't, it just wasn't an option in my brain. And so I started looking into it. I took the GRE. Some of the advice I was given really early on in my search was, you know, grad school is a five to six year process. You should go somewhere that you want to be like somewhere you want to live. Um, I got the same advice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I thought it was really good advice because at the time, like I didn't, I hadn't identified exactly what I wanted to study. Right. I hadn't identified anyone in particular I really wanted to work with. I just knew I wanted to do research and I wanted it to be in microbiology. And yeah. I had lived in the Midwest my whole life. And I thought the Pacific Northwest sounds really nice. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I applied to a couple schools out here. Um, I got the chance to interview at Oregon State. Absolutely loved Corvallis, loved the university, loved the department uh, that I'm in. Um, and so I made the decision to pack my bags and put myself and my cat on a plane and <laughs> come out here. And cool. here we are. Here we are. <laughs> awesome. Well, we have two traditions on the show. The first thing is uh, to give have you give us a piece of advice that you would have given to a younger self or someone on the same path as you or just anybody listening if you want? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, can I give two? Sure. Okay. I'll give one more Over generally two. because um, whenever I say I study the gut microbiome, this is the first question people ask is, okay. well, how can I make it better? How can I make my gut microbiome better? Okay. And the, the piece of advice I just give about that um, is eat more fiber. Okay. So um, any kids listening out there, eat your veggies. Nice. Uh, <laughs> your gut microbiome will thank you. Um, and then, yeah, I guess if I had to give advice to my younger self or someone on a similar path, you know, grad school is all about work-life balance, I think. Uh, and it can be really easy to lose sight of that when we get so enthralled by our research and maybe feel a lot of pressure to make it our entire lives and our entire identities. But you know, this is a, a decent portion of our lives and, and of our young adulthood. And 
So, you know, it's important to remember your passions and your hobbies and, you know, keep feeding those loves. Um, don't lose sight of those things and you'll be a better grad student, a better scientist, a better human for it. So that's what I would say. I think that's awesome. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. The second tradition that we have is to play you out on the song that you picked. So tell us what that song is and why you picked it. So this song is Summer Girls. It's by the band Haim. Um, I picked it because it just recently came out and Haim is one of my favorite bands. Um, They're a sister rock trio from LA and I just really love their stuff. And this is something they just dropped a couple days ago. So awesome. We've just been obsessed with it. All right. Well, We will play Summer Girl now. And thank you one more time for coming on the show. Yep. Thanks for having me. (laughs) 